Well, good morning again, friends. I invite you to turn with me now to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Unusually for us, we're going to read just one verse of this chapter, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 967. The context here is that Paul had earlier written a letter to the Corinthians where he had issued this stinging rebuke to them for their sin. And now he has heard back that they have responded to his letter with repentance. They have responded in a humble and and godly way to his rebuke. And so now he is writing and, and commending them for recognizing their own sin and responding accordingly. And as he does so, he he gives us these two alternate ways of of responding to sin that he calls godly grief and worldly grief. So let me read 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we do ask again that you would come and be our teacher and that the truths that we have spoken and sung and and shared would be a reality in our minds and in our hearts. Spare us, Lord, from mere abstraction, mere theory. Would the truth of your gospel grip us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, a theme right through our service this morning has been the theme of sin, and we have sung about it, that it was our sin that caused Christ to die. We have confessed it together. We have sung that we bring our our guilt to Jesus. We've said that ours was the sin that drove the bitter nails. Again and again and again throughout this time, we have spoken about, sung about, reflected upon this idea of sin. But I wonder for us this morning how concrete a reality our sin really is. If you've been around our church for a while, and, and certainly if you're a Christian, then you would, I'm sure, recognize that, yeah, we're, we're sinful. Uh, but I wonder if we think, well, okay, this week, how did that actually play out for you? And how did you then respond to that sin? So not just kind of in theory, but in practical reality. Like, how did you sin this week, and how did you respond? Now, don't worry, we're not going to have, like, super awkward time of group sharing uh, where we go around and, and actually uh, uh, confess. However, I'm, I'm, I am going to share one story with you from this week, which was uh, Monday night, <clears throat> I took uh, one of my wee boys to soccer, and I said to him, okay, soccer ends at 7.45, I'm going to work out, I'll be back. Okay, see you soon. Off I go, completely forgot about the time, right? Now, isn't it interesting? <laughs> Even there, sin is coming out. Because doesn't I forgot about the time sound better than I forgot about my child, right? Um, but, but that's what happened. Off I go, just, you know, do my own thing in my own head. And then I had this moment of realization where it just sort of suddenly hit me out of nowhere. And I, it happened right as I looked at my watch, 8 o'clock, right? <clears throat> I rush out of the gym jump in the car. I've got like three missed calls from him thinking, oh no, right? And then I I just drive like a maniac to the park. You know, last week I was saying you should drive like you're handcuffed to Jesus, yeah? Uh, (laughs) I drove like I was about to be handcuffed by someone else, right? I mean, I just like come tearing into the park and as I come flying around the corner, I see him sitting there in his ball, right? All alone in the parking lot, apart from like this kid way down who looks like he's selling drugs or something, you know? (laughs) 
And then in that moment, in that very moment, I, I experienced two realities. First of all, I genuinely experienced a kind of godly grief. A, a genuine sorrow, a genuine repentance. Like, ah, oh, you know, uh, you always want to be faithful to your word with your kids. You know, if you say you're going to do this or if you say you're going to do that, you want to make sure that you do. And if you say you're not going to do this or not going to do that, you really want to, you want to follow through. You want to create that safety, that security. You want them to be able to rely on you. And I just experience this, this, this genuine, I think, godly grief. And then as he gets in the car, I experienced worldly grief. As I said to him, did you call your mother? (laughs) Godly grief, worldly grief, all playing out in response to this one sin. Now, as a church, we're in the middle of a series on revival. Why? Because we're in a great season of our church's life and we praise the Lord for it. But in a season of growth and in a season of blessing, we want to be very careful. Why? Because we want to be very careful to understand that that true growth, true health, true spiritual fruit isn't a matter of new services and facilities and and parking lots. These are important things and we're, we're trying to deal with them all. But true growth, true health, true spiritual fruit is not about those things. Those things are our means to an end. What, what we really want to see, what we really want to see grip just our, our own hearts, but our church as well, is, is the reality of God. That we might be alive to God. That we might be awake to Him. That we might be animated by His grace toward us. That we might live the Christian life without pretending. Live the Christian life without pretending, without going through the motions and so together we're considering okay what does true revival look like if we're to do this what is it that brings revival to our hearts how does this actually take place last week we considered the first mark of biblical revival which we said was an awareness of God's presence we need to live in that present awareness of his presence with us In the gospel, we believe that God has broken into human history and and drawn near to us. That in Christ, God is now here. God is now near. And that through faith in him, we are united to him, handcuffed as it were, so that, yes, though many of life's circumstances unfold as, as normal, they couldn't be more different because of his constant presence with us. This week and next week, we want to look at a second mark of biblical revival, which isn't his presence with us, but rather his pleasure in us. We're going to see this week and next week that revival happens when we live in that present awareness of his pleasure in us. But to get at that idea, this week, we need to start in a kind of counterintuitive place We need to start with talking about our sin. J.I. Packer says, No upsurge of religious interest or excitement merits the name revival if there is no deep sense of sin at its heart. Now, 
I don't know what you're thinking at this point. Maybe you're thinking the same thing I was thinking as I started to prepare this sermon, which was, well, this series was fun, okay? Uh, But now, hey, let's go to church and think about our sin. Or let's stay home and, you know, stab ourselves in the eye, okay? You know, like both both of those things sound about as fun as each other. But uh, uh, just hang with me, okay? (laughs) Hang with me, hold on for a minute. Because according to the Bible, an awareness of sin is not an end in itself. An awareness of sin, rather, ushers us into a greater awareness, namely, an awareness of the pleasure God takes in us. And so what we're talking about here, when we're talking about an awareness of sin, we're not just trying to kind of feel badly about ourselves or or wallow in guilt and shame or beat ourselves up or descend into some kind of lethargic self-reproach. In fact, Paul very much warns us not to do that when he tells us that worldly grief produces death. Isn't this an interesting contrast we get in our text between godly grief and and worldly grief? He's saying, don't don't have that kind of worldly grief. He's saying, it's possible to be sorry for sin. It's possible to have an awareness of sin, and yet not in a way that's healthy or productive. It's possible to feel sorry in the wrong way, to feel a sorrow, but not one that honors God or does us good. To be aware of our sin, but not in a way that leads to to revival or leads to life. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He wrote a book about 350 years ago on this kind of false sorrow or, or worldly sorrow. And he said it's often motivated by one of two things. And this was helpful to me as I tried to see how this plays out in my life. Maybe you'll uh, see something of your own life in this too. Uh, first of all, Watson says that this, uh, this is kind of unhealthy sorrow, this worldly grief, is often motivated by uh, present pain. In other words, we're not sorry about sin because it's sinful, but because it's painful. So... You go out and you drink too much. And the next morning you have a hangover and you say, never again. What are you saying never again to? Not the sin of the night before, but the pain of the morning that's now here. Or, for example, you've been lazy and didn't prepare for a test or a presentation or a sermon and it goes poorly. And then you say, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Well, what are you sorry about? Your laziness on the front end or the fact that it just didn't go well on the back end? Or, you know, you, you, you looked at porn and your parents found out or your spouse finds out and now you're sorry. Not really sorry because of the sin, but sorry because of the consequences the sin has brought. Sorry not for sin, but about the pain sin has caused. And it's worldly in the sense that it has no reference to God. At no point through that entire exchange have you actually felt sorrow in relation to God for how your sin has, has damaged your relationship with him or, or offended him. We just feel bad about the bed that we've made and that we now have to lie in. Worldly grief motivated by pain. Secondly, Watson says that the worldly grief, yes, will sometimes be motivated by present pain, but sometimes it's motivated by, by future fear. By future fear. Similar to the first kind, but this time it's a sorrow, not because sin is sinful, but because of what might happen next. So you cheated on a test or you cheated on a project and now you think someone's found out. 
Or you told a lie to a friend and, and they have found out? Or, you know, um, you, I don't know, gossiped about someone and it, and it looks like it's going to get back to them. Or you did something on the weekend and it might damage your reputation. Again, we're not really sorry for the sin itself, but about the potential consequences this sin may bring. Worldly again, in the sense that it has no reference to God. You can walk through that entire process and, and never think of him once. Not really concerned about the offense it is to him or indeed about how that sin has damaged your relationship with him, just feeling bad for the situation we put ourselves in. And so we see that in in both these cases, worldly grief motivated by pain or fear is an awareness of sin, is a sorrow that's really just about self-interest. It's really just about self-interest. It's me saying, did you happen to call your mother? Right? The concern isn't relationship. The concern is myself. Now, I wonder if you, like me, have experienced this kind of sorrow, feeling bad, terrible even, but without any reference to God, really concerned about how events have or will impact you, and that's not the kind of sorrow, that's not the kind of awareness of sin that will lead us to revival, that will lead us to, to life, to being awake, to God. In fact, Paul says that this kind of grief does nothing but produce death. You see it there? Worldly grief produces death. We can't change what's happened in the past. We can only manipulate for the future. And so we're left with a sorrow that has nowhere to go but down. Down toward anger and frustration and depression and bitterness and and resentment. A, A kind of grief that's filled with regret. So When we think about revival and we think about our sin, we don't want to fall into thinking about sin in that worldly way. Instead, we want to think together for a few moments about what Paul calls a godly grief. Godly grief, we read, you see it there, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So Paul's saying, and I find this interesting, yes, you can be sorry for your sin in a way that's unhealthy and unproductive, but... You can also be sorry for your sin in a way that's healthy and productive. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You catch the the flow of his, his logic. He says, godly sorrow. So sorrow that's not motivated by self-interest, but but sorrow that has great reference to God. Sorrow that is motivated by how our sin has offended him, about how our sin has hurt hurt and damaged our, our relationship with him. Sorrow about how our sin has put a barrier between us and him. This kind of godly sorrow, not concerned about ourselves, but concerned about him, produces what? Repentance. Not self-pity, not wallowing in shame, not wallowing in guilt, not just feeling bad about ourselves, but repentance. Why? Because when we see our sin and we take that sin to God, we also see what? His mercy. His mercy. We see sin, yes, but we also see his mercy. And so we seek out forgiveness. We seek to turn from our sin to him. And that leads us to what we read? Salvation eternal life so powerful that it is even without regret isn't that a beautiful thing if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning you do not need to regret your past and let's count your past as anything that happened before right now because 
you are no longer defined by your failure, but by his faithfulness towards you. And so we don't look back on the past uh, with a sense of, of shame and, and guilt and regret. Instead, we celebrate the present salvation we have that frees us to a, a life lived for him. J.I. Packer again sums this up beautifully when he says, Under revival conditions, conscience and consciences are so quickened that conviction of sin becomes strong and terrible, inducing agonies of mind that are beyond imagining till they happen. But, important line, conviction of sin is a means, not an end. It's a means, not an end. The Spirit of God convinces of sin in order to induce repentance. And one of the striking features of revival is the depth of repentance into which both saints and sinners are led. Here's the key line. The gospel of forgiveness through Christ's cross comes to be loved as never before when folks see their need of it so much more clearly. Catch that connection? We start to love the gospel more when we start to see our need of it more. The depth to which we will uh, praise him for his grace is commensurate with our, our recognition of how much we need forgiveness. We'll celebrate the debt that's forgiven to the extent we realize the debt that we'd accrued. In other words, this awareness of our sin ushers us not into self-reproach, but into celebration, for we see how much we've been given. We see how much pleasure the Lord has taken in us. How much pleasure he has taken in us. Pleasure enough to send his son. Pleasure enough for his son to die for us. Pleasure enough to call us to himself. Pleasure enough to forgive every sin. Pleasure enough to one day take us home. Pleasure enough for everything we need in this life and the next. An awareness of sin ends up connecting us to his grace in a way that changes everything. So one preacher says, telltale sign of the American church telltale sign we've been in the language we've been using telltale sign of of sleepy Christians is that we are neither sad enough nor happy enough we're neither sad enough nor happy enough we are neither hot nor cold we're lukewarm kind of lukewarm about our sin we're kind of lukewarm about uh, grace Why? Well, sure, we're sad about some things. We're sad when our team loses. We're sad when our kids misbehave. We're sad when we fall out with a friend. We're sad when we miss a promotion. We're sad when we think about politics. Uh, We're sad about lots of things. But we're disconnected from the eternal sorrow that is our sin. Disconnected from the the reality that if I was the only person that had ever lived, Jesus would have had to die on the cross. That's the the seriousness of of my sin. And and the same is true for you. And yet we we lose touch of that reality so that sin becomes something that we acknowledge is true of us, but not really something that we can point to this week. And so it becomes a concept, it becomes an idea, it becomes abstract. And when sin becomes that, grace becomes that too. It becomes a concept, an idea, 
something that's in the abstract, not something that we desperately need to meet our desperate conditions. So we're not sad enough, but nor are we happy enough either. We're happy about things like the team winning or the kids behaving or getting that promotion, but we're disconnected from the eternal happiness that is our salvation. Disconnected from the eternal happiness that's found in the gospel. If we don't bring our sorrow to God, we don't taste the mercy that's ours in Christ. We don't celebrate the debt that's been forgiven. We don't see and experience the heights to which which he has brought us from the debt. There's a direct relationship of our understanding between the two. And so a question to kind of set us up for next next week is this. um, Are you sad enough to be happy? Are you sad enough to be happy? Are you sad enough for your soul to be glad? Sad enough about your sin and the reality of it? to be eternally happy in the salvation of our God. The more we know our sin, the more we know his grace, the more astounded we are by the pleasure he takes in us. And that's when revival happens. When my wee boy jumped in the car, I, with godly sorrow, first said to him, Ah, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I hate that I didn't show up when I said I would, and I hate that I left you here. Um, oh man just feel bad about that and he looked at me and he said dad it's alright forgive you yeah? and I was like yes <laughs> gospelness in my civic right <laughs> gospelness filling my civic right that relationship deepened godly sorrow ushering me into the pleasure he feels in me as his father beautiful So, I experienced that. I experienced something else too. (laughs) On the worldly sorrow part. Get this. I didn't tell Rosie until I decided I needed to use it in the sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Like you didn't sin this week. Come on. (laughs) Judge me. And... Let's just say that that decision didn't deepen relationship. (laughs) Right? Godly grief, genuine sorrow, real repentance is alive and it's active and it's animating because it isn't a means, uh, sorry, it isn't an end, it's a means. And it ushers us not into self-loathing and self-reproach, but into the presence of God. And there, aware of our sin, we become aware of that greater reality, namely his pleasure in us. How does that play out in some practical ways? That's what we'll, we'll talk about and attack together next week. But this week, we move to the illustration of it. The illustration of our sin and of Christ's grace. In the Lord's table set before us now, we have the powerful picture of both. First, of our sin, because it shows us what had to happen that we might be saved. If you're not sure about how serious sin is, take a look at the cross and find your answer there. And if you're not sure of his grace, then look to the very same place. If you're not sure how much God loves you, look to the very same place. 
and see not just what had to happen that we might be saved, but what he was glad to happen that we might see grace. At the cross we see both our sin and his grace, and at the table we're ushered in to that present awareness of his pleasure in us. Let's pray as we move to this time. Father, we recognize that the Christian religion is intellectually stimulating. It is powerfully so, and yet it is more than that, Lord. We're not dealing with mere concepts. We're not dealing with something in the, in the abstract. We're dealing with true truth, with real reality. We're dealing with our sin and the salvation that you offer us in the gospel. So, Lord... Would you make these truths alive in our hearts, vibrant in our hearts, powerful in our hearts? And would you do that now through this meal, we pray. In the perfect name of Jesus, amen.